Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you notice, uh, today's uh, communion Sunday, and uh, we're going to be celebrating the good news of our crucified and risen Jesus Christ together as a church body this morning. Um, I'm glad that uh, Communion Sunday fell, or at least the uh, sermon for today fell on a Communion Sunday, because what we're talking about today is uh, the foundation upon which the church is built. And that foundation is nothing less and nothing more than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Last week we began considering the church as a means of grace, and uh, our starting point as we begin to consider how the church functions as a means of grace is to try to understand the nature of the church. How you think about the church will impact whether or not you recognize her importance and ultimately, how you think about the church will shape your relationship with her. The church, we saw last week, was central to the eyes, or excuse me, to the plans of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is what he is focusing upon building. And if the church is not central to us, then we find ourselves not in accord or in agreement with Christ. If the people of Christ are not what we're focused on, helping to upbuild and helping to strengthen and love and serve, then we are not joining in with the Lord Jesus Christ and his purposes for his church. In Matthew 16, there are four things that Christ has to say about the nature of the church, or at least four things that we're focusing on. Uh, as I just mentioned last week, we saw that Christ is in fact, the one who is building the church. And that's the first reality we need to understand about the nature of the church, that the church is not something that springs up on its own. It's not the product of some evangelist or pastor or preacher coercing people or manipulating them into believing something about some guy named Jesus. 
The church is a gathering of people whom Christ is building together upon himself. Christ is the one who is building his church. After his death for sin, his burial, his resurrection and glory, and his ascension into heaven, Jesus Christ began the new covenant work of building his church. As the Son, seated on the throne of glory in heaven, waiting for the day when that throne will descend to the earth in all the fullness of its glory, Even now, God the Father is extending his son's scepter and pushing the rule of his son even out into the midst of his enemies, as Psalm 110, verse 3 and verse 2 says. And every local church is an expression of that reality. Every local church is a testimony to the fact that God the Father is extending the scepter of his son in the midst of his enemies. And in the church, the rule and the reign of Christ is being upheld, though she is surrounded by many enemies of the cross. By his great power, Christ is building his church. And if we're going to have a right relationship with his church, we must keep this fact in mind. I don't, I don't need, I can't afford to go off on this today, but you need to understand. You need to understand that you are an expression of that reality. Not everyone in this room belongs to Christ. I would never presume to believe that. Not everyone in this room is truly being uh, founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ or or has been knit together with the people of Christ upon the foundation of Christ. But the majority of you who claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who have had a true saving work wrought in your heart, and you have been gathered together with the people of Christ to worship His holy name, you are an expression of the rule and the reign and the glory and the power and the beauty and the splendor of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. As a pastor, it is my privilege and it is my joy to be employed in the service of of the church of Jesus Christ. I recognize that Christ is the one building you. And uh, my only only hope is that I don't get in the way. By, By God's grace, I know that won't happen. At least not too badly. Christ is the one building his church. And then secondly, we noticed last week that in the church, we find the true people of God. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus takes a word that was used in reference to Old Testament Israel often. Jesus takes a word that was used in reference to Old Testament Israel, and he uses that word to identify his new covenant people. Now, that is not to say that the church has replaced Israel. I hate that phraseology. But it is to say that the church is the fulfillment of everything Israel was intended to be. The church is the culmination. The church is the completion of what Old Testament Israel was designed to be. The church that Christ is building as the Messiah 
is the completion and the fulfillment of what he began building with the church in Israel. God does not have two distinct peoples, in other words. He is not building one people upon Christ called the church and then someday is going to start a new or different work with a separate people called Israel. That is not the teaching of the New Testament. And if you allow yourself to imbibe that kind of teaching, you are diminishing your understanding of the glory and the real nature of the church. Romans 11 verse 17 makes clear There is only one olive tree through which salvation flows to God's people. Some connected to that olive tree are, are, excuse me, some of the natural branches, as it says here in verse 17, are broken off from that olive tree. That's referring to unbelieving Jews. Then there are some who are identified as unnatural branches, who are being grafted in to that olive tree. They are, that is referring to the believing Gentiles. But there's still only one olive tree. And that's my point. There are, there are not two olive trees representing the people of God. There is one olive tree, and you are either broken off of that olive tree, or you are grafted into that olive tree. But either way, there's one olive tree, there's one people of God, there's one fold, there's one flock, there's one shepherd over that flock, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is his church. His church is made up of any and all who have been grafted by faith into the olive tree of the Messiah. So if we're going to understand the nature of the church and our relationship to it, we have to understand that the church is the true people of God. They are the ones whom he has chosen, and they are the ones whom he is bringing to glory. Now today we're going to look at the most important part of the nature of the church that's mentioned in Matthew 16. It was my intention to finish out our time in Matthew 16, but as you guys have come to expect, I've extended this to another week because I think we need to spend more time focusing on this one key element that really defines everything about the church. What we're going to be looking at today is the foundation of the church. This is what makes the church what the church is the foundation upon which she's built. And so there are three questions that we're going to answer this morning, I hope, with enough clarity. The first question is, what is the foundation of the church? Jesus describes that in verse 18 as the rock, this rock. What is the foundation? Second question, how does Christ build his church on that rock? How does he do the work of building his church upon this foundation? And then thirdly, we're going to ask the question, are we built upon that rock? Are we joined to this spiritual house that is established upon the rock that Jesus has built his church upon? Those are the questions we're looking at this morning. I would ask you to pray with me. Desperately pray with me for the Lord's blessing on our time.
Or do you know... Father, it's our great comfort that you're very aware of what is happening in this church body, what is going on among the members of this church, the trials and the pains, the sorrows, and the joys. Lord, one of the greatest words in your scripture in relation to Israel is that when they were in bondage in Egypt, you saw them, you knew, you paid attention, and out of that you remembered your covenant with them. Father, we know that you see us, that you remember your covenant with us in Jesus Christ. We know that you are very aware of what we're going through and uh, we know that you know. And so, Lord, what you know and all that you know about us, I pray that you would build our hope and our faith upon the rock of Jesus Christ this morning. It's only the rock of your Son that remains immovable and steadfast, Lord, that is unshifting. And and I pray, God, that in our good times and in our bad times, and when our times are mixed with both, I, I pray you would keep us firmly established upon the rock of our Lord. Lord, please bless the preaching of your word this morning. I I have no delusion of thinking that I can bless your people. But I believe that you love your people, Lord, and that you will strengthen them with your word. And so please, for the glory of Christ's name, let your word do its work among us this morning. Father, we pray you would exalt Jesus Christ as our, as our great hope We want nothing other than Christ to be lifted high. Father, would you do that among us this morning? Show us how much you love your Son. Show us how the Son is the object of your affections. Lord, let him be the object of our love, the object of our affections, the one we are desirous to serve. God, I pray for this blessing. I ask that you'd be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Here, when Christ says that he will build his church, obviously the church is being pictured as a building. 
It's this edifice that Christ is constructing, something that he is bringing together and building himself. The church is pictured as a building, and Christ himself is the builder. And everyone knows that a building must have a foundation if it is going to stand. And the quality of the foundation on which the building stands will determine the integrity of the building. Here, Jesus is referring to the church's foundation when he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, this word rock here is not talking about a stone that you would pick up and put in your pocket. It's not talking about a pebble. It is actually referring to something much bigger than that. This is referring to a big rock. Not, not like a boulder big rock, but what I mean by that is sometimes this word is used to describe like a mountain, a mountain as a rock. That's a huge rock, right? Other times this word is used to describe bedrock. If you, you reach down to bedrock, this word would be used to describe that reality. When it's used in connection with the idea of a building, it is referring to the house's or the building's foundation. In fact, Jesus used the same word in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 25, to picture the eternal security that those who trust in him enough to act upon his teachings have. He says in verse 24, He who hears these words of mine and acts upon them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. That's the word that Jesus is using here in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus is saying something of the same thing as he says there in Matthew 7, except here he is speaking corporately about the body of his people. In Matthew 7, we're dealing with individuals, those who will respond to his teaching in faith Improving their faith in him by acting upon what he has said. Jesus says, those who obey my word, they will be like a house founded upon the rock. Well, that same principle extends here to Matthew 16, except, as I said, here it's talking about the, the entire corporate body of his people. In other words, Jesus will ensure that his church will withstand any storm any rains that come upon it, any floods that slam against it, any winds that blow down and beat on it, because his church will be built upon a firm, immovable, tested, and unflinching rock, a foundation stone so strong and immovable that the very gates of death will not be able to overcome it. Not because the church is so strong will she stand, in other words, but because the rock on which that church is founded will she stand. Now for the million dollar question and one that has plagued theologians for centuries and split churches in two, what is that rock that Jesus is talking about? What is the foundation that he's going to build his people upon? Well, some, in line with the Roman Catholic Church, will claim that the rock Jesus is talking about here is Peter. Peter's name, most of you know this, Petros in Greek, Peter's name means rock. 
And while speaking to Peter, Jesus says, you are Peter, that is, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Now the Catholics say clearly the rock Jesus is talking about is Peter. Jesus has made Peter the head of the church, and he is building the church upon the ministry of Peter. Now that work is carried over according to Roman Catholic theology uh, through the succession, uh, the apostolic succession in Rome. It is carried over to the Pope in Rome. Big history of how they make those connections. I'm not going to go into that. But Roman Catholics point out Jesus uses the word rock. Peter's name means rock very clearly. Jesus is saying he's going to build his church upon Peter. Now, very briefly, I just want to point out a number of reasons why that cannot be the case. I was going to cut this out, but I started questioning my allegiance to the Reformation whenever I was deleting this section. Let me point out a number of reasons why Peter cannot be the rock on which Christ is building his church. And I'd ask you to stay with me through this. We're going to get into the meat of the text in just a minute. Number one, I've got four reasons. Number one, as some argue, the Greek words used for rock in this text, Petros and Petra, just so that you're aware of what they are. Petros is Peter. Petra is this rock. As some argue, even though these words are from the same family of words, they are nevertheless two different words. One is a masculine form of rock and the other is a feminine form of rock. And as some argue, according to the rules of Greek grammar, a feminine noun cannot be used to refer back to a masculine noun. They have to agree not only in case and number, but they also have to agree in gender, according to Greek language, if you want to get technical. And so there's no way that Petra, this rock on which I will build my church, can be referring back to Petros, Peter, because Petra is feminine, Peter is masculine, Petros. They cannot be referring to each other. Now, I don't know that I would throw all my eggs in that basket, but I do think that there's an argument to be made there. So that's one reason why this cannot be talking about Peter. Number two, even if the grammar was not the issue, it is obvious that no mere man can be the foundation that upholds the people of God. Amen? In fact, Peter himself proves that even if it were possible for a mere man to be the foundation of the church, he would not qualify to be that man. I mean, just a couple verses later in verse 23, Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? Now, in that text, Peter is opposing Jesus when Jesus begins talking about the pinnacle of his work that he's going to accomplish for saving his people. He's going to die for their sins. He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again on the third day for the sake of his people. And Peter comes up to the Lord and says, God forbid, Lord, I rebuke you. That will never happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, 
you are setting your mind on the things of man. Now, there's a lot that can be said there, but doesn't that show us that even if a mere man could be the foundation of the church, it would not be Peter? In fact, some might argue, well, that was pre-Pentecost. That was before the outpouring of the Spirit and the, and the powerful influence on Peter that made him this strong pillar in the church. Well, that's true, but even after that happened, what did Peter manifest? Did he then manifest that he was strong enough to be the foundation of God's people? Absolutely not. Go read Galatians 2, and what do we find out about Peter? Years after he has been operating in his apostolic ministry, Paul has to rebuke Peter because, according to the truth of the gospel, Peter stood condemned. Verse 14, it was because he was not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel. He was withdrawing from the Gentiles, right? That's the whole argument of, of, of Galatians. There were some who were arguing that in order for the Gentiles to become the people of God, they had to become Jewish. They had to adopt Jewish practices. They had to adopt Jewish ideas in order for them to be a part of Christ's church. And Paul comes to them and says, look, even Peter was caught up in this hypocrisy. He stood condemned before the gospel, and I had to rebuke him publicly. I'm not trying to be hard on Peter. We all have our mistakes. We all mess up. We all withdraw from the gospel and stand condemned by it in one way or another. There's grace. There's mercy with our Lord. I'm not denying that. But what I am saying is that even post-Pentecost, Peter did not prove himself to be an adequate foundation for the church. Number three, any time that an apostle is mentioned in connection with being part of the foundation of the church... Peter is never mentioned alone. He is always mentioned in connection with the other apostles. So, for example, Revelation 21, 14, there's not one foundation stone upon which heavenly Jerusalem is resting. This is a picture of the church coming, the glorified saints coming down from heaven with Christ to inhabit a new earth, right? There's not, there's not one foundation stone there that's upholding that people. There are 12, and they are the apostles of the Lamb. Or you can go to Ephesians 2.20. What does it say there? That the, the foundation of the church, it's built upon the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So it's not Peter who is the foundation of the church. It is all the apostles collectively who help strengthen the foundation of the church. But who is the one that holds it all together? It's Christ. And that's where we're going. Christ is the foundation, but I'll show that in a minute. Number four, probably most importantly, Scripture says that there is only one foundation for God's people, and that is God himself. Isaiah 44, verse 8, Yahweh says to his people, Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. Peter is not the rock of the church. God is the rock of his church. And only God can be the rock or the foundation of his people. And so for these reasons, Peter is clearly not the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church. But that leaves us with the question, if Peter is not that rock, then what rock is Jesus talking about? Well, to understand that, we have to start back in verse 13. 
where Jesus asks his disciples an important question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Son of Man here, this is Jesus' favorite way of describing himself. Particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, it's recorded 31 times that Jesus calls himself or refers to himself as the Son of Man. Nine times before this chapter, Jesus has identified himself as the Son of Man to his disciples. And so when Jesus comes to his disciples and says, who do people say the Son of Man is, they would have understood what he was asking. He was asking them not who do they think this person of Daniel 7 is, where Son of Man comes from, but who do people say that I am? That's what Jesus is asking. What are the people saying about me? In verse 14, the apostles or the disciples at this point come and they report back to Jesus what they were hearing. They said, well, some say that you are John the Baptist. And we remember that with Herod, right? After Herod put to death John the Baptist, he heard of Jesus' miracles. And what did he say to himself? John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, right? There were some who were saying Jesus was John the Baptist, reincarnate, I guess. I don't know. Risen, anyway. They say there were still others who were saying he was Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What I find interesting is that then, just as it is now, there was no shortage of opinion about who Jesus was. And almost every single opinion that was offered was wrong. Right? Nothing's changed. Nothing new under the sun. Everyone has thoughts about Jesus. Very rarely does anyone get it right. I've wondered why Jesus framed this discussion this way. Why did he stage this discussion around two questions? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Why even ask his disciples what everyone else was saying about him? Did that really matter? I mean, seriously, did that matter? What anyone else was saying about Jesus when it came to Christ's relationship with his disciples? No, it didn't. Now, I don't know all the reasons why. I don't know exactly why Jesus may have chosen to start this discussion this way, other than to magnify the necessity of his people to walk in the light of personal knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. Fewer amens on that one. You didn't follow me. It's okay. Let me see if I can prove my case. I don't know why Jesus chose to use these two questions to frame the discussion with his disciples. All the truths that Jesus makes known about himself could have been brought about in this discussion without bringing in the reference to other people. So why does he do it? When you start asking those kinds of questions, then you're beginning to do the work of exegeting and understanding the scriptures. That's where the hard work is. Well, I believe Jesus did this to magnify the necessity for his disciples to walk in the light of personal knowledge of him. A knowledge about him that is not based upon what everyone else is saying, but a knowledge of him that they had come to discern for themselves. Verse 15 
Jesus makes clear that his intention is not to focus on what everyone else is saying. He's not concerned about what the rest of the people are saying about the Son of Man. No longer is he asking his disciples what everyone else thought of him. As he turns to his followers, he says to them, not what is everyone else saying, but who do you say that I am? The mask is off here. He doesn't, he doesn't offer the question with couched language. Son of man disappears and is replaced by me, right? He's not asking, who do you say the son of man is? He's asking, who do you say that I am? Nor is he asking what everyone else is saying. He is simply looking at his disciples in the eye and saying, who do you say I am? That's where we get to the real issue. And I believe that's where we find out the true quality of our discipleship under Jesus. Not what everyone else is saying about him, but what do I, what do you say about him? If you'll permit me to go on a little tangent here. Though I think many are somewhat afraid to admit it, it does seem to be our tendency to compare ourselves with others and to judge our beliefs based upon their opinions. At times, we even try to reconfigure what we think about something or what we know about something according to what other people have to say about it. COVID is a classic modern example. Everyone has an opinion and no one agrees. And we're all trying to shift our opinions around to accommodate for different opinions, at least some of us. We have this tendency to judge our convictions, our beliefs, our opinions, our judgment about what is right and wrong, true, not true, based upon what everyone else around us is saying. This is especially the case when it comes to people's ideas about Jesus Christ. For some, and I think this is really the sad reality that we have to, we have to confront hard. For some, the entirety of what they believe about Jesus is built upon what they have heard from other people. What I mean by that is not that we are not dependent upon what we've heard from other people. We are. We're dependent upon the scriptures for all of our knowledge of Jesus Christ. Who were the scriptures given through? They were given by the Spirit of God through the prophets and the apostles. So we are dependent upon what other people have told us about Jesus. But that's not what I'm talking about. For some, the entirety of what they believe about Jesus is built upon what they have heard other people say about him. Not only other people's doubts and questions regarding Jesus, but also, more commonly, they've built their entire belief about Jesus on what other people have claimed to experience with Jesus. Their thoughts are determined 
by other people's testimony of encountering him or even by what they have observed Christ doing in someone else's life. And the effect is to have their entire relationship with Christ defined by secondhand information, secondhand encounters, secondhand experience. They build their opinions about Jesus based upon what other people are saying about him, and yet they find themselves having no real convictions or real substantive opinions about Jesus formed by their own personal experience of him. Well, this book gives this evidence about Jesus. Well, that person says this about their relationship with Jesus, and they let that determine the quality of their own relationship with the Son of Man. You know, what this text shows us, at least what I believe, one thing that this shows us is that when it comes to being a follower of Christ, Jesus will have none of it. He will not shortchange our relationship with him by leaving it defined by the testimony of others' relationships with him. As I said, we in our day are dependent upon the testimony of the apostles, but even that must come upon our hearts with a personal touch of the Holy Spirit's hand if we are truly to understand who Jesus is in reality. We must know these things. We must know Christ ourselves. And so we cannot suffer the delusion of thinking that we personally know Jesus Christ if all our knowledge of him is based upon what other people are saying about him. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, comments on the fact that even in our own day, there are all kinds of voices around us telling us what to believe and what not to believe, what's ridiculous, what's not ridiculous, what's believable, not believable, what is actually substantive and what is vapid and empty. He says that the true intimate knowledge of Christ is not found in the multitude of voices around us telling us what to think. Rather, Packer says, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. How do you prove pudding? Well, you can look at it and you can say, well, it looks like pudding. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's some jelly substance made of petroleum and antifreeze mixed up and just left there to sit for two years like what's in my garage right now. Kind of looks like pudding. If I put that in a bowl and I brought it, maybe someone will look at it and say, oh, that looks like pudding until you taste it. Then the proof of what it is is actually known. It's experienced. It's realized in the person's actualizing experience. Does that make sense? Packer says the proof is in the pudding. The proof in the pudding, excuse me, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. There it is. And he says, and anyone who is actually following a recognized road will not be too worried if he hears non-travelers telling each other that no road exists. Did you follow that? If you're on a road that's recognized and you're walking down that road, you're not going to worry about other people who are not traveling down that road saying that the road actually doesn't exist. You're experiencing the reality of the road as you're walking upon it. 
That's the kind of relationship that Jesus is demanding his disciples have with him. A ro- uh, an experience, a relationship with him where they are actually walking with him down that road. Verse 16, Peter confesses what he and the other disciples had come to know and experience about Jesus. Not what other people were saying, not based upon the opinions of the world around them. And you think about who were giving these opinions about the Son of Man. We're not talking about just the average John or Mary walking around the promised land, right? We're talking about the scribes, those who were masters at the letter of the law, understanding what it taught. We're talking about the Pharisees, those who were masters of living out the letter of the law. We're talking about the Sadducees, those who were the major rulers in the land of Israel, made up most of the Sanhedrin, the elders of the people. It's these people who were projecting these opinions about Jesus, but they got it utterly wrong. Now, if in the apostles and the disciples' perception, if anyone was going to believe, to be believed in regard to their opinion about Jesus, it would be the academics. It would be the scholars. It would be those who were, who were well-vested and educated in the, in the letter of the law, and they knew what they were looking for in regard to the Messiah. And here they are saying, well, he might be a miracle worker like Elijah. He might be a prophet like Jeremiah. He might even be a good man like John the Baptist. But he's not the Christ. He's not the Son of God. Well, here Peter confesses as a representative on behalf of the entire body of the apostles what they had come to know and to believe about Jesus. And it wasn't shaped by the opinions of the world around them. Rather, Peter says in response to the question, Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, regardless, regardless of what modern day academia and biblical scholarship may have to say about what this rock is, I will argue until I am blue in the face Red in the face, I'm always red in the face, but maybe I'll go blue. I will argue until I am blue in the face with Augustine and Origen and Luther and Calvin. I will gladly die on this hill that the rock that Jesus Christ is talking about is not Peter. It is not Peter's confession. It is Jesus Christ himself. The rock upon which Christ will build his church is what Peter confesses, but it's not Peter's confession. It is the substance of what he had come to know and understand about this man standing before him, this one whom they had heard teach, this one whom they had seen do mighty miracles, this one whom they ate with and slept with and walked down dusty roads in Galilee with, the one whom they had fish with, the one who they probably argued with. They had come to see about this man that he was more than a man. He was, in fact, the Christ. He is, in fact, the Son of the living God. And that it would be impossible for him to be any other. I don't have time to go. I I had to remove a, a huge section. 
just walking through what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, what it meant for the apostles to confess, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. Just jot these scriptures down. Go look at them later. What it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, it means that he is the promised one of Genesis 3.15. They recognize that he is the seed of the woman who would undo all the damaging effects of the devil. He would reverse the curse. He would restore his people. He would redeem God's creation from its fallenness. They said, Jesus, you are that Christ. You are that promised one. It means that he is the great prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18.18, where Moses says a prophet like me is going to be raised up, and in his mouth will be the words of Yahweh, and you will be held accountable to listen to every word he had to say. The apostles looked at Jesus and said, that's you. We've heard it in your teaching. We know that no man has ever spoken like you do. You are that prophet. You remember what they said in John 6, 68 and 69? Right? You're like, yeah, tell me. What did he say? Yeah, I remember that. But what, do, you, do you remember that? I hope I do. Well, Jesus, he's telling this hard teaching to the people that he is, in fact, the bread of life that has come down from heaven. That no man has salvation apart from eating his flesh and drinking his blood. This huge crowd that is following Jesus, the majority of them turn away at that teaching and they say, this, this is a difficult teaching. This is hard. I don't believe this. And they turn away. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave too? And what was their response? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to know and to believe you are the Holy One of God. See, he spoke like no man had ever spoken before. And for the disciples here in Matthew 16 to say, you are the Christ, they are confessing, Jesus, you are the prophet, the one who came to reveal all that we need to know about the Father. And you see the fulfillment of that in Hebrews 1, 1 to 2, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers in the prophets, right? You get this picture of partial revelation, partial revelation, time and time, chunk here, chunk there through the prophets. But in these last days, very key phrase right there, we are in the last days according to the New Testament. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. You know the quality of the sun. He is the radiance of the invisible, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. When the disciples are confessing Jesus to be the Messiah, all of this is included in that confession, even if they didn't fully realize what they were saying in the moment. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is to call upon him as priest. 
the eternal priest of Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest. This, this, this Adonai who Yahweh tells to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. He gets to verse 4, and the Father pronounces over the Son. Yahweh pronounces over this Adonai. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Your saving work on behalf of your people will endure as long as there is time in creation. You are the priest. You will reign as priest forever. To say that Christ is, to say that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that he is my final great high priest. The one in whose, in whose saving work I am entirely dependent for my relationship with God. See, to confess Jesus as the Messiah is to confess that he is the anointed one of Psalm chapter 2. That's what Messiah means, anointed. He is the one whom the Father has set upon Zion, his holy hill, who is given charge over the nations and is instructed to rule them with a rod of iron. He will dash the nations to pieces. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is to say that he is the universal God-appointed king over all of God's creation and all those who take refuge in him are blessed. Jeremiah 23.5, he's the branch of David who will reign forever and in whose days, verse 6 says, the people of God will be saved and will dwell securely. He's the ruler of the people of God from Micah 5, 2 through 5. He's the one who comes to gather in the people of God with the strength of Yahweh himself. He will stand in the strength of Yahweh and he will shepherd his people and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. And this one, verse 5 says, will be our peace. To say that Jesus is the Messiah is to claim all these things to be fulfilled in him. And to say that he is the son of the living God, we know from John chapter 10 and John chapter 5 is to confess our belief in his deity. In John 10, I believe it's 36, when Jesus calls himself the son of God, we realize in verse 33 that the Pharisees understood what he was saying. He wasn't just claiming to be some special man in favor with God. They understood that by saying he was the son of God, he was claiming to be equal to God. And they picked up stones to stone him. Did the same thing in John 5. When these apostles, when these disciples are here claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God, they are claiming Jesus to be their Lord and their God. Their great God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the point here is that when they make this confession, Jesus doesn't skip a beat in saying, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Blessed are you, Simon, because you see this. This is the rock on which Christ will build his church. It's the truth about who he is. 
I don't have time to go through all of this. We don't have time, but what does this mean? This means that Christ is the only foundation for the people of God and there will be no substitute. One day you guys are going to get rid of me because I just look ridiculous up here sometimes. I can't, can't stop myself at times from wanting to, wanting to cry. Do you understand what it means for Christ to be the foundation of the church? It means that there is, there is no depth to which Christ's people will sink, where Christ will not be found firmly placed underneath them. Think about this in context of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying to his people, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. What is Hades? We've already mentioned that. Hades is death. It's the great curtain that's coming upon all of us. Right? It's the shadow that falls upon every single one of us who live in this world. Apart from the second coming of Christ splitting open the sky and calling forth all people to judgment, you and I are going to face this moment of death. Hades is going to come knocking at the door. And the question in that moment is not, am I strong enough to beat down these gates and get out? The question in that moment is not, am I good enough for those gates to open and let me out? The question in that moment is, do I have Christ as the foundation under my feet? Because if I do, then death will not defeat me. Because death did not defeat him. Jesus Christ, when he entered into death, you understand what he was accomplishing. He was not just dying as some martyr or some misplaced revolutionary. He said that the Son of Man came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was he ransoming the many from? He was ransoming them from their sin and from the just rewards that their sin had deserved. Death, eternal punishment away from the presence of God, enduring His almighty wrath. I know it is not popular to say that in our day, but it's true. God is wrathful. He has anger and indignation at sinners every single day, Psalm 7 says. Psalm 5.5, He hates the doer of iniquity. Well, guys, that's all of us. We've all done iniquity. We're all guilty. We're all stained and blemished and filled with crimson spots in the presence of God. God has hatred towards every single sinner. Not a hatred like you and I have, but a righteous, just hatred. Unless that hatred is dealt with, we cannot be brought into fellowship with God. Unless that judgment is taken away and that sin is removed and our stains are washed clean by something that is strong enough to wash them clean. Without that, we have no hope in our relationship with God. 
Here Jesus Christ comes as the Messiah, the Son of the living God, in order to be the foundation underneath the feet of his people. And so it's only because Christ has gone to the lowest of the low on our behalf. It's only because Christ has been clothed with the deepest and darkest sins of his people. And I know what's coming to your mind right now when I say the deepest and darkest sins. You're thinking of thefts. You're thinking of adulteries. You're thinking of pornography. You're thinking of drugs. You're thinking of alcohol. That's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about Christ being clothed with the deepest, darkest sins of humanity. I'm talking about the sins of presumption. I'm talking about the sins of faithlessness. I'm talking about the sins of indifference and lethargy. Laziness before your Lord and God. I'm talking about that sin of presuming upon His kindness and grace and forbearance, not realizing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Jesus Christ was clothed in the sloth and the filth of His people. And as our foundation, Jesus willingly stepped into the crimson mire of our sin and was plunged into the fullness of our filth, bearing the full weight of our sins upon himself. He willingly allowed himself to sink down under the depths of the wrath of Almighty God. As our foundation, guys, he went as deep as the deepest circle of hell in order to redeem us from it. And by his resurrection from the dead, we understand that Jesus Christ has firmly been placed as a foundation for the church. The Father actually has made him the cornerstone upon which he is building his people. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is Psalm 118 talking about there? It's talking about the day of Christ's resurrection. This is the day when our salvation, the gates of salvation, have been fully disclosed to us all. And our Lord Jesus Christ, who rose triumphantly over death. So Christ, Christ is the only foundation for the people of God. Now I've got to decide where we're going to... Let me just run through this briefly. Question two, how is Christ building his church on this rock? Well, we find here in this passage that Jesus is building his church on this rock through a work known as divine illumination. Divine illumination. What do I mean by that? I mean Jesus is building his church on this rock by awakening sinners to the reality of who he is such that they confess the truth about him in genuine faith. You see in verse 17 of Matthew 16, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal to you that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Rather, it was my Father who is in heaven who revealed this to you. 
Now, just trying to run through this, you can argue with a person all you want about the truthfulness of the gospel. You can present evidence for the resurrection. You can present reasons why the scriptures are uh, trustworthy and why they are sufficient for us. You can present every single last bit of 10,000 reasons someone ought to believe in Jesus, and it will never be enough to bring someone to saving faith. You can have all of your doubts and all of your questions answered, all of your things addressed, those gnawing realities that you want someone to answer for you before you come to Christ. You can have all the answers to those things given to you, and you still will not find the strength to come to the Lord Jesus. Why is that? Because salvation is not the product of flesh and blood. Realizing who Jesus Christ is is not something that we do in and of ourselves by our own might, by our own strength. It's not something that someone else can do for us. No one can convince us into being saved. <clears throat> Salvation is a work of God illuminating the heart of a sinner to see the truth about Jesus. And in seeing the truth about Jesus, that sinner is irresistibly drawn to come to him. Jesus says here, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. As I sew this up, let's end on the third question. Are we those who are built upon the foundation of Christ? The foundation is the truth about who Jesus is. The process by which Christ places his people upon that foundation is the work of awakening. The Father revealing the truth about his Son to them, glorifying his Son in their hearts so that they come to his Son. How do we know if we are among those whom Christ is building upon that foundation? How do we know if we are actually part of his church? Are we built upon the rock? Well, the answer comes down to the simple question that Jesus asks in verse 15. Not who do people say that the Son of Man is. Who do you say that I am, Jesus asks. Now, Listen, you may be uncomfortable with my forwardness. You may be uncomfortable with my volume, my tone, whatever it may be. I, I can't help most of that. I'm sorry. But what you do need to realize is that Christ Jesus is being more forthright with you and direct than any time I've ever been with you. <laughs> Jesus doesn't care what everyone else in this world has to say about him when it comes to his relationship with you. What matters to Christ is what do you say about him? Do you confess him to be your Lord? Do you confess him to be your Messiah, your hope, your Savior, your Redeemer?
If you and I can say with a heart of true faith in response to the question, who do you say I am? If we can say with genuine and true faith, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, then my friend, we can be confident that Jesus has joined us to his church and he is building us on the foundation rock of him, the gospel. And you have to evaluate your own confession here. No one can look into your heart and see whether or not you're being genuine. As Paul says, no one can say Jesus Christ is Lord except by the Spirit, besides the fact that many people say Jesus Christ is Lord without the Spirit. So what is he talking about there? He's talking about a genuine confession of the Lordship of Christ. No one can discern whether that's true in your heart. That's something you have to work out before the Lord. Who do you say he is? If you can say with integrity and honesty and with a clean conscience, Jesus is the Messiah. He really is the Son of the living God. He actually has come and he has accomplished salvation for sinners like me. I'm going to cling to him. If you can say that, my friend, you belong to the church. However, if we cannot say that, if there are doubts about whether or not we truly believe that the Lord is Christ, the Son of the living God, the King over the universe, the one who will judge the world in righteousness, the one in whom salvation with God is to be found, if we doubt that reality, then we have no confidence to say that we belong to his church. If that's us, then we need to spend time dealing with Jesus. We need to run to him and we need to pray and beg that he would help us see what is true about him that we do not yet see. Just because a blind man doesn't see the sunrise doesn't mean the sunrise isn't real. Right? Just because a sinner doesn't see the glory of Jesus Christ does not mean that the glory of Jesus Christ is not real. Many people in this room would testify to the reality that it is very, very real. What is your answer to that simple question, who do you say that I am? That will manifest who does and who does not belong to the church. Where God is truly working in a person's life, there will be a grand view of Jesus Christ. When God is bringing someone to salvation, the evidence that the Lord is bringing that person to salvation will be a large, all-encompassing view of who Jesus Christ really is. You see here in this verse, it's the Father's will that everyone honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Isn't that amazing? In fact, it says you cannot honor the Father unless you are honoring the Son. Doesn't that show the importance of Christ in the eyes of God? And what, the, what God the Father is seeking to accomplish in our lives. What does God want from us? He wants us to have a really big view of Jesus. He wants us to honor His Son with all that we are. He wants us to love Jesus as we would love the Father Himself. Only in doing that will we actually be living lives that are worthy of the God who made us. 
Why should we honor the Son? Why should we love Him? Because of the greatness of the work He's done for us. Because of who He is. No one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. I pray you find the comfort and the grace of building your life on that foundation, both individually and corporately, today and tomorrow and in the days ahead. May you go in the peace of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.